You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Let's talk about carnivores, yeah. <laughs> yeah, carnivores and predators, but before we get before we get into that fun stuff, we gotta talk about some other fun stuff, which is hunting. So you just started hunting like a few years ago, right? Well, uh, I'm, I'm getting older, TikTok. So it's actually, um, let's see, it's about a decade ago now. Yeah. So, oh, okay. So it is a, yeah. Well, you're a yeah. pro. Well, no, I don't know if I ever will be, but it's super fun. Um, it's been really interesting to get into, uh, I think, especially as a professional wildlife biologist has definitely given me a really different perspective um, on the wildlife themselves, but maybe even more so, um, into the hunting community, you know, which is such a big part of wildlife management. Um, you know, I came out of a pretty non-traditional undergrad program for folks. Like I didn't know that wildlife was a thing you could go study. So I have a degree in ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, and I would have just told you that, you know, a deer is just a, an animal like a mouse or a, ferret or whatever, you know, I didn't see a distinction between things that are hunted and things that weren't and how differently those are managed and funded and, um, talked about in the world. And so, um, it's been, and what the media gets excited about and what they don't get excited about. Yeah. And well, and that's not always the same thing as what hunters get excited about and don't get excited about. Right. So, you know, the things that get covered in the New York times are, are pretty different than the things that, um, that, uh, that hunters and wildlife managers care about sometimes. So yeah, it's definitely, it's been a really interesting kind of revelatory process to start to become a hunter. Um, and I, yeah, it's also made me realize what high barriers to entry there are for hunting. You know, it's, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of folks grew up hunting and, you know, were kind of seamlessly mentored into that by friends and family didn't even give it a second thought, right? It's just part of your family's lifestyle. Um, and definitely not part of my family's lifestyle. So, uh, yeah, I, I was an adult learner. And so that's always an, I think an interesting perspective to take on, on any activity or sport. So yeah, um, I learned from scratch. I I actually first was interested during my PhD research, you know, I was doing what I call catch and release hunting. Uh, so ground darting deer, <laughs> uh, so to catch a Sitka blacktail deer in the forest, you know, there's no helicopters, uh, they have plenty of food for the most part. So clover traps aren't very helpful cause they don't care about your bait. Um, so no clover nets or, or, um, or, uh, rocket nets or drop nets or like all the things that you might think about using for deer. And so we were just straight up, um, either trying to call them in with a fawn bleat and have an ambush set up or um, spot them along logging roads and then stalk. And so it was real slow. You know, we'd maybe have three, three or four possibilities a day where they were within range, and one of those would end up being a safe shot, you know, and where we're shooting a, a dart that really is the dimensions of a, of a pencil and flies about as well as a pencil. Um, you know, they're 10 or 12 centimeters long. They have a radio transmitter in the butt of the dart and the front is heavy because it's got a barbed tip and then is full of drug um, to knock the deer down. And so the ballistics suck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, it's a, yeah, it's a really, I guess it's, it's like, it's like archery, but worse. 
Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. You're, you're almost like primed <laughs> to just go straight into archery hunting. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's like really poor quality archery. Um, so anyway, it, it, but it did get me used to looking, you know, through a scope at a deer and, and thinking about shots and, and, um, all of that. And, um, I was also getting some help from this guy, Jim Bachtel, um, who is just, uh, the most passionate deer hunter I have ever met. Um, that is really, he lives and breathes deer. And so, um, he was helping me do my winter fawn monitoring and, um, yeah, I asked him if he might be willing to take me deer hunting and he said, yes. So that's oh, the, cool. that's the short story. Yeah. That's short so story. And that's so that, nice, yeah. and that, is that the film? That is, that is the film. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I think Randy Newberg is always looking for stories about public land and the value of public land. That's really his mission with his show. Yep. Yep, um, and so, you know, I think the, the story that they were looking for was trying to kind of compare and contrast what's going on for Sitka Blacktails more broadly, which is the ongoing story of commercial logging, right? The mm. last of the high-volume high old growth being taken. Same for Columbia Black Toils in, uh, in British Columbia, right? All the controversy around old growth logging there. Um, but especially when you get farther North, that snow interception, um, and forage retention that you get in old growth is just really critical for Sitka blacktails. You know, when you get a a snow that's as as deep as a deer's shoulders or belly, you know, it's critical that they be able to get out of it and still find food. And so, um, you really only get that forage and snow interception in old growth forests. So old growth. Yeah. Um, so they were really looking for a way to tell the story of habitat, but in a way that didn't feel preachy. Um, and so I think the way to do that was to go find some really, um, stellar out of this world habitat. And so that's what kind of led us to that particular place and kind of led to the framing of that story. Yeah, no, it's, it's a wonderful story. So for listeners, if you don't know what we're talking about, Sophie was in a Randy Newberg production film called Reindeer, uh, Blacktail, a Sitka Blacktail story, and that's on Randy Newberg's YouTube channel. And uh, yeah, Sophie goes on a hunt to this just amazing place in southeast Alaska, and it sucked getting there, right? Could you imagine um, packing something bigger than a little deer back out of there? I know, I know. And then uh, there's idiots like us that do exactly the same thing, and we're looking for something like an elk. <laughs> or, and, and we're going, what are we doing up here? <laughs> or I know some folks who've gotten into some pretty um, grueling situations with uh, moose in Alaska. Um, oh, made gosh. some poor decisions, shot it a little bit too far from the river or the road, yeah, as the case may yeah. be, and then you have to... It deal with the consequences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And those things like, well, compared to an elk, I mean, they're, they're like dinosaurs. They're so yeah. big, right? It's you, you go, Oh, what did we do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Should have stayed home. <laughs> well, and it, it's actually, it's interesting. I think some, that a lot of places in Alaska have rules about, um, having to retain uh, proof of sex on one of the moose hams, which yep. basically means you have to be able to lift one of those moose hams and pack it. And like, I actually don't think I can pack that. So like that, that hunt is not actually open to me because I cannot lift and carry for any distance, um, the rear ham of one of those moose. I would have to, I would have to kill a smaller moose lesson. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's like a full white tailed deer, man. Yeah. 
Yeah, just the quarter. Yeah. Just like put a whole deer on your back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I tore my ACL said, skiing. So I think I think my Alaskan moose days may have may have already passed me by. So Oh, well you gotta just keep her on the riverbank. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But that's exactly. That's always the idea. So when you said when you said like getting into hunting gave you like a different perspective for a wildlife researcher, like like go into that a little bit more. Like what what has it done for you? Like how, how do you see things differently or how, how do you, like, I know there's the whole part about, I think you spoke about this in the film. It's sort of like your research is funded by hundred dollars. So there's trying to understand the hunting world, but just for you individually, how, how has that helped, hindered, changed what you do as a researcher? Yeah. Well, I think it, um, it gets you into the woods for a long time, paying really close attention. Um, and you know, it's interesting often as a, as a researcher, you're very, um, you're very agenda driven. And obviously with hunting, you are too, right? You want to find an animal and and shoot it. (laughs) But, uh, but with research, there's often like, okay, go to this GPS coordinate and do X, Y, and Z tasks or, um, uh, you know, do telemetry and zero in on where this doe has given birth to her fond and find both fonds. You know, it's very, um, it's very goal oriented and often time is limited, so you're trying to be efficient and you're trying to really um, get there quickly and then accomplish what you need to do and then like go to the next task because you only have, you know, four, let's say four months in a summer and you have several hundred animals you're trying to keep track of, right? And it's just, you know, okay, this, you know, as soon as I get done with this, I need to go do a mortality check or whatever it is. Your time is very short and you're trying to collect high quality data, um, not necessarily stop and kind of closely experience where you are. Obviously there are Mm -hmm. moments like that, but um, I think the push for efficiency actually uh, can lead to not doing as high quality of natural history. Uh, I actually think in in general in North American, I can't speak to, you know, other places, but in North American wildlife education, there's natural history is dying, right? We're not doing those kinds of classes anymore. Um, you know, even, uh, I hate to say it, even some wildlife majors I know looking at camera traps will look at an elk butt and say that's a mule deer, right? So there's just, um, <laughs> uh, you know, much less, uh, you know, track or pellet comparisons or hair, whose hair is this? You know, all that kind of super detailed stuff um, is vanishing from from college curriculums and from people's lived, learned experience. But I do think that hunting absolutely demands that if you want to be good at it. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I can, I can, I can see that. And, and I, I can also see the parallel between um, hunters that are um, worried about that goal. It's like, I got to go out. I just got yeah. the weekend. Um, you know, all my friends got like a nice buck this year and I haven't got anything yet. And there's like all this pressure. And so they're going out there and it's like, oh, I got to get into this spot. And it's like, oh, Oh, there's no buck there. Ah, dead. Oh, geez. You know, now I got to go to this other spot. And like that almost sort of sounds like what you're talking about where, where I've been stuck in those situations where it's just like, you know what? Just take it easy. Don't care about anything else. Don't care about if you get a deer, just go sit on that edge of the meadow and like, just 
put your ass down and stay there for six hours, no matter what happens. And then three hours later, you're all of a sudden like, oh, there's like 10 things have walked by already. And um, yeah, you know, and I, I think that's, I, I can that's see part that. of why, you know, if people can do it, I think it's so great to have a, a home place where you go, you know, where you know the lay of the land really well, you keep learning it better and better every year. Um, you're able to be there kind of as, as, you know, before, during and after hunting season, um, and kind of watch it change and watch the animal sign change, learn the bedding sites, learn how the wind moves in the morning and the evening, all of that stuff. Um, and also be able to get there relatively easily so that there's not this kind of like, like the pressure you're talking about this got to succeed now today. Cause we fly out tomorrow or whatever it is, you know, those special destination hunts are really cool. But I, yeah, I think there's a lot of value in, in local home ground hunts too. Yep. Yeah. No, abs- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the, maybe the differences too is, uh, as, as you know, like, uh, in science you're collecting data and sometimes like, like zero is still data. It's like, oh, I'm doing this grid system. And if there is like, uh, if there's a deer in the plot, I count it. If there's not, that's still a data point where for hunters, like a, a zero data point is just like, is like a shitty day. <laughs> you didn't get anything right. Yeah, um, but for science, a uh, data is data. I, I, that's so interesting. Again, I think if you're, if you have, um, if you have the time and you're not quite as goal driven, I think zeros can be, you know, most of the hunters I know who really spend a lot of days in the woods every year are doing, they are collecting data. They are sciencing, right? That's, that's absolutely absolutely what they're doing. And some of them have actual spreadsheets and some of them just have really great memories, but you know, they are, when they don't see deer, they're trying to figure out why, you know, when they don't see that target animal, is it, is it because it's too hot out? Is the wind, you know, too high and they can't hear, you know, um, where there are just predators through here. And so, you know, herbivore activities tamp down for a little while. They're always, they're always coming up with hypotheses, right? Why yeah, am absolutely. I observing what I'm observing? And then trying to find the evidence to, to swing it one way or the other for themselves. And they're really curious that way. And I mean, I really think that we're all born scientists. You know, every little kid is born asking questions. Sometimes it drives parents crazy, right? Those why questions. Um, and then at some point we tamp it down, <laughs> but, so, but, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities as adults to, to still engage with that curiosity yeah. and, and hunting certainly one of them is, is one of them. No, I absolutely, absolutely agree. Like, like on, on all, all counts. So I, I believe, and I think I've read this before, like the human mind as it matures actually operates like scientifically in that it sees things in the world it develops hypotheses, tests it based on what you're seeing. And then it's like, yep, I got a model. I got a mental model of how the world works. And every time I see something, I'm calibrating and reaffirming that model. And then there's sort of like the brain, other than a little different than science, the brain will go, yep, I got it figured out. And now I'm just going to go through the rest of my life affirming everything to what I already believe. And then those are the people you can't change their minds. You know, well, what about, nope, nope. It's just, this is the way it is. Right. And, uh, and from a hunting perspective, I've talked about this before. It's like, 
if you hunt sort of thinking scientifically like that, it's sort of like it, especially if you're learning, it's like you're hunting a deer, you've done your research. What is that deer like? Okay. There's a good starting point. Now, where is that? Now go there. Did you see a deer? Why did you see a deer? You didn't see a deer. Why didn't you? And then, and then you hunt taking those observations and you're actually plugging it into a model of how you're trying to figure out how the deer work in that particular area. And over a lifetime, you know, you can calibrate a model and then it's like, why does that guy go in there every year and he gets a buck, same spot mm-hmm. every year. And it's like, that's why, because his, his hunting brain is working like science. So Totally. And I think the, the best folks are able to take in new information, update that mental model of the world they have for how a deer works when something teaches them something new, you know, and so they're still getting better at age 60, at age 70. They may not be able to go as far or carry as much, but they're, but they're um, still improving their kind of mental model for deer or whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. And this will probably come up as we get into our conversation, but if you want to talk about a field where people have got their mind made up, it's about predators and predator management. This is like, nope, don't care about that study. I just think this is the problem. And, and, well, but and I would say that's, that's really interesting. Why do people have their minds more crystallized and made up? Why, do, why are predators more polarizing than prey? Yeah. Well, that's what we're going to get into. I've, I've got notes on that one. So. Yeah, good. Um, hey, well, everybody. It's uh, Mark Hall, your host. Welcome. And it's Curtis Saul, the co-host. This episode of the Hunter Conservationist Podcast is sponsored by the Fisher Peak Brewery in Cranbrook. Summer's here. Uh, well, it's not officially summer, but it's pretty damn close. I think when this comes out, it'll be six days or something to the 21st. So almost summer. But what pairs better with summer than beer? Mm, nothing really, in my mind. Beer and summer are like the most dynamic duo ever. Husband and wife. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> folks, if you have not tried it yet, the beer down at Fisher Peak Brewing is some next level stuff. Just tastes fresh. If you know, you know. It's, it's fantastic. With 11 handcrafted beers on tap, there's a flavor for every occasion. You also have your choice of seven beers in cans, which allow for maximum beer drinking portability. You can also bring your growlers in for refills for what's on tap. So yeah, thanks to the Fisher Peak Brewery for sponsoring this episode. Make sure you check them out next time you're in Cranbrook. And another shout out to iHunter for once again being a supporter of this episode. And they still have that sweet deal on for you. They have their iHunter app for nine provinces and territories. BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. We say this all the time. We really truly feel like this is a tool that all hunters should be utilizing with the public land feature. Whether you're an absolute beginner first day or you've been hunting sheep for 40 years. Everyone runs into times where you're just not exactly sure about where private is, where public is. Uh, So just give yourself that peace of mind to know exactly where you are, where uh, the private land starts and and where the public land ends. 
Uh, so the folks at iHunter are still offering 20% off your first year of the public land subscription. So head over to web.ihunterapp.com and use the code THCPODCAST when you subscribe to the public land subscription. Again, all that information will be down in the show notes. So you can still listen to this podcast, but you can scroll down and head on over and get yourself a sweet 20% off an iHunter subscription. Awesome. Somebody asked me this on social media, just so you know, THC podcast is the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Yes. It just so happens that THC is also the... Psychoactive compound. Yeah, it's the psychoactive compound in cannabis. So it's like somebody messaged me and it's like, what the heck is that? I'm like, it's the podcast, dude. We've had a lot of stoners writing in. I don't know why, but... (laughs) I don't know. Sounds like you guys have some new sponsorship opportunities in the state of Washington, potentially, you know? Yeah, we just hope somebody doesn't, some lawyer doesn't write us and say, you're not allowed to use THC because it's trademarked to the... um, The alpha. Sophie, welcome to the show. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to be here, guys. Awesome. Yeah, we're ready to start rocking and rolling on the predator topic there. So that's this is going to be exciting. So um, everybody, we have um, Dr. Sophie Gilbert on the show with us today. Um, you are a professor of wildlife ecology and management at the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho. Cool. Yeah, that's right. Um, pretty far north by U.S. standards and... Really far south by Canadian standards, about four hours <laughs> south of the border. Uh, I, I see some stuff where people are talking about um, there's some l- a legislation or something in, in the U.S. about funding of the Northern Rockies. And, and I'm like, the Northern Rockies, that's like Northern B.C., Alberta, and the Yukon. <laughs> it's like, that's the Southern Rockies. <laughs> totally. Yeah, so. well... Almost as frustrating as when you're doing wildlife research and you find a really cool map layer, you want to use some cool thing, you know, about the forest or the climate or whatever, and it's got that frustrating line where the data just stops at the border. So um, I feel your pain. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There's, There's things that just do not happen north of the 49th parallel. There is no turkeys there's all kinds of stuff up this is just not up here Barren. it's just it's just kind of magical yeah like not enough wildlife research that's what's not up here that's why our maps don't have lots of colors like your guys's uh well so i know some folks who want to fix that that's a whole different conversation though it, it is yep we just need some um armored cars full of money <laughs> Dumped on research chairs, laps. Yeah, that's what we need up. That's what we need in Canada. More of so some kind of excise task tasks on tax on something or other. Um, whether it's guns and ammo or backpacks or hiking boots, but um, I'm sure you've talked to other folks about that in the past. That's got to be one of it's, the little hanging fruit. It's been bantered around in Canada for decades. Um, it's just the political will has never been there uh, in Canada. And, you know, I kind of wonder about 
Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson in the U.S., like those were established like a long time ago that if somebody tried to table that now, I, I bet you it wouldn't go through. People Never. would be like, you can't tax guns. I'm not going to pay more for ammunition. Leave my fishing tackle alone and all this kind of yep. stuff. Where I back think there's then, no it was chance. Sort of, there's no chance yeah. it would happen today. For example, right, the backpack tax, the idea that other outdoor recreation deer, gear should be taxed um, to contribute to maintaining nature um, has failed a ton of times. And it's mostly because the industry lobby, REI and company, don't want it to happen. Um, yeah. There's also some resistance from hunting groups who don't want to share seats at the table. But um, Oh, yep. gosh. So, don't you love politics? Oh, Eagles? boy. Yeah. No, up here in Canada, we're more worried about if a gun kind of like looks scary, like that we'd have to spend a lot of time and energy to put in legislation. So you can't have it like paintball guns, airsoft mm. guns, airsoft guns. They look scary. So Brad Naylor. I think in yeah. America, it's like the scarier, the better, you know, get bounty points for it being scary. Oh, Totally. <laughs> I just I just saw a news story where uh, California, state of California, um, court system shot down uh, something to do with a uh, weapons ban on quote unquote assault looking rifles and said it was unconstitutional. So there you go. Yeah, big change. I mean, in the '90s there was an assault weapons ban in the U.S. and now it's hard to you know ever imagine that coming back. At least not in the current climate. This, uh, this last year, um, during the pandemic, record-breaking guns and ammo sales in the U.S., um, including and lots of hard. folks who've never held a gun before and were, you know, freaked out for their own safety. Um, yep. Yeah, I guess the very small silver lining is a couple of years from now, there'll be a bunch of funding for wildlife, but it, uh, that's, not, that's not where I would like that money to come from. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it's totally. bunches of pe- people being scared, you know, that's not, that's not my ideal. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Very, very strange dynamics when it mm-hmm. comes to why people buy guns and why they don't and all those sorts of things. But, um, predator, predators, predator management, we just kind of started to talk a little bit about these people's have these entrenched positions about this topic and I kind of want to kick off with that like there's a lot of controversy around predators and predator management there is in both countries and it's not the first time it's happened it's it's always ongoing it seems to be really intense right now in some states and some parts of parts of Canada and divides people divides communities family members like hunters against non-hunters like it's just it's crazy and it's like why do you think that is well i think we've always had strong feelings about carnivores you know they're very emotion invoking animals but i think you're right that that things are a lot more polarized now than they have been at some other times um might be part of our dna because literally they did used to eat us Sure, and we've always been competing for animals we both want to eat, for sure. And I think, you know, you look at across cultures around the world, there's also a lot of um, reverence and respect for carnivores often in terms of where they fall into um, 
stories different cultures tell about their origins or, um, you know, in cultures that have a more relational um, viewpoint of nature. There's often lots of stories about human, human wildlife interactions that involve carnivores, um, humans and bears, humans and wolves, etc. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we've always really connected with them in some ways. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I, I actually think in, in some ways, maybe that's, uh, that's what's, uh, part of what's going on today, at least, at least one end of the spectrum. I mean, I I really think we can think about it as, you know, the folks in the middle, the wildlife managers, they're really being squeezed between folks who have a more kind of traditionalist view of wildlife, (laughs) Um, you know, maximize the the wildlife we want to harvest and get rid of our competitors, the predators, Um, wildlife for consuming and human use, that kind of classic traditionalist viewpoint. And yep. versus the mutualists out there, right, who think of animals as part of their living community, their conscious beings, just like we are, have thoughts and feelings and, and should be treated as such. And obviously those two viewpoints are in tension with each other. Um, and I think those two viewpoints um, also are kind of both simultaneously getting louder. And, and that's really interesting to me. And I don't yeah, know why it is. No, that's a good I, I feel that too. Yeah, it's a it, real... One interesting trend is, you know, there's some really great research out of Colorado State University, um, the Wildlife Values Survey. If you haven't seen it, I super recommend you looking it up. It's it. They have a whole website. Um, if you just Google Wildlife Values Survey, uh, they've got a lot of different products now. They've been doing this work for, you know, 25, 30 years, which means that at this point, they actually have uh, data through time what we dorks would call longitudinal data, right? Where you can actually look at how people's feelings and attitudes towards wildlife change through space and time. And mm. in almost every state, including what we think of as very conservative states, and I imagine these same trends would be at play in Canada, um, there is a really striking increase in the proportion of the population that thinks of themselves as mutualists. So thinks of animals as other beings who we should have relationships with um, and who aren't necessarily there primarily for our use. Um, And I think that's part of what's leading to, uh, you know, a lot of the tension between traditional wildlife management practices and, uh, you know, like the ways we deal with carnivore conflict, for example, or culling wolves to save caribou and the incredible backlash that that's now engendering um, from this mutualistic population, right? Who's off, they're often concentrated in cities, um, don't necessarily have to live cheek by jowl with wildlife, although not always by any means. There's plenty of rural mutualists too. Um, and so I, I certainly think that, that that trend towards seeing wildlife as not as people, but as, um, as individuals who matter individually is, is a real challenge to how we the tools that we usually think of for managing wildlife and wildlife conflict. Yeah. Well, I mean, even like, I think that, that whole field, um, ontology, ontological relationships, uh, has been like a big kind of philosophical science wildlife kind of field. I've read some books on it where they kind of go back to like the different, um, relationships of different cultures throughout time, ancient cultures have had with, with wildlife. 
Um, you know, there's ones where like toadism where it's like animals are like, like God, their spirits, and they kind of like honor and pray to them to, uh, others where they actually like see wildlife as like, they see them as, if I remember this right, like they're humans, like they're, they're, they're a being, they're a non-human being. Like right. I'm a human being, but that, that bear is also a being like the same as a human, but it's, it's a non-human being, but they see it as like, almost like your neighbor. Hey, how's it going, Bob? You know, like it there, that's a whole relationship that's different cultures through different times and different places of the world have had. And I, it seems kind of like that's kind of a, maybe a modification of that, that North Americans are sort of adopting is maybe not quite seeing them as a type of human, um, or a type of being, but as like a living entity that is like your neighbor and we should treat it like our neighbor. So. Yeah. And in some ways I think that's a really positive trend, right? You know, I, I want people to care about wildlife and be engaged. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of research that shows that animals um, do have, you know, emotional reactions to things. They do have, you know, lifelong relationships with each other. Um, they certainly feel pain, you know, so I think respecting that's important. I think one potential difference between um, some of these kind of historical or, or, or still current but grounded in long traditions um, ways of seeing animals as fellow beings and today's kind of rise of the modern urban mutualist is, is the, the mutualists of today, a good chunk of them are not really deeply grounded in that animal's biology, um, in its costs and benefits, you know, what we would call ecosystem services and the good and the bad, right. Of those animals. Um, and, and they're certainly not grounded in the kinds of tough trade-offs that folks really living embedded in nature would understand would have to be made sometimes. So I think it's, yeah, it's no, great to see them as, as individuals and to try to, you know, extend our empathy to understand animals better. Um, but it, it doesn't necessarily always come with an equal uh, level of ecological knowledge to go with that, for example. Um, I think, yeah, you know, no, obviously would, things agree. like the feral cat debate, right? Stuff like that, where it just, Oh, we, we catch them, kitties. we neuter them, feed them, <laughs> and then they uh, have a right to live. So we turn them back loose right. and they're killing all these native birds and stuff. And, and small like, mammals you... and lizards and, and, and you know, uh, it's like, what are you doing? Right. It has right, a right exactly. to live. And it's a, it's a horrible and hard trade-off, right? I mean, um, sometimes... Uh, Save the invasive wild pig. Really? Right. But <laughs> sometimes doing, getting the ecological outcome we want um, does take hurting individual animals like that. Mm. And that's, yep. I think, I think that's a pretty nuanced conversation. It's not a nice thing to think about, but I think we need to do more of that, explaining why sometimes that's necessary and what those trade-offs are. Because I think people really have their hearts in the right place often, you know, and I, again, um, I want people to have empathy and, and extend their understanding to animals, but that empathy should extend to the birds that are getting eaten by the feral cats too, right? So <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky yeah. one. It, yeah, no, I, I agree. And um, like you see people that have 
super strong empathy and compassion for like the predators, like pick wolves. And that's all they see. They just, they, they just see the wolf and we have to protect it. You can't hunt or trap them or they shouldn't be managed. They're just these things that deserve to live. And then you have other people um, that have that understanding that ecological knowledge that's sort of saying, you know, it's like those wolves eat those deer and those deer are on a substantial decline because what we were talking earlier, they're logging all the old growth forest. So when we're over here talking about this, it's like, if you lose the deer, you lose the wolves, but they only like, like, don't just leave the wolves alone. That that's all we see. And it's kind of like, if you want to save the wolves, you need to be advocating for the deer, which is kind of what hunters, you know, sort of a lot do. They And trappers, they make those those connections, right? And we did a podcast earlier in the year with a couple of researchers that do snowshoe hair. And it's sort of mm. like, you know, the foundation of the boreal forest, everything flows from the snowshoe hair. So if you're interested in mesocarnivores, start with the snowshoe hare and the snowshoe hare's habitat. And it was like, that was pretty interesting. Well, I would argue that, you know, if we could actually get everyone who cares about wildlife to care about habitat, <laughs> that would be even one step better, right? Don't get stuck on the deer. <clears throat> you know, don't get stuck on the deer. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the forest, you know, and how we manage the forest. That's what certainly underpins the, the declining caribou debate. Um, it's what underpins a lot of different things. And uh, habitats, habitat's I think, fine. There's too many wolves. <laughs> Nothing yeah. wrong with the habitat. <laughs> right. It's, you, I think you, predators make one? great scapegoats. They make great scapegoats because they certainly do eat deer and elk and moose and stuff we care about for sure. But are they, are they the driver of the decline or is something else the driver of the decline underneath it all? And, Doing the science to answer that question is actually really hard. <laughs> oh, Teasing yeah, those things apart. Absolutely. Um, and, and I don't think people appreciate that, you know, right? And it's like, yeah, the wolves killed the moose, but the moose was like starving to death. So that even becomes the question. It's like, well, then what actually killed? How do you tick the box? Do you blame the wolves or do you blame starvation? And it's like those, and to tease that stuff apart, what you're saying becomes awfully difficult. Like last year's winter, how does that affect this year's moose mortality and survival irrespective of what the wolves do? And how is you, how do you separate all of that as a scientist and, and say, yes, for sure it's this or that. It's, yeah. Well, it's almost never, Yes, for sure, it's this or that. You know, we call we call when an animal got killed by one thing, but if it would have been killed, but if it didn't die from cause one, it would have died from cause two. We call that compensatory mortality. Um, okay. So one one uh, cause of death is kind of compensating for the other. Um, and if you were to remove one cause of death, the other one would go up. Right? It's the same. It's yes. the idea from you know a lot of folks are probably familiar with this from kind of the game bird world, the doom surplus every year, right? That there's kind of often more animals born than can survive if food is limiting. Um, and, and that whole kind of foundational thing of kind of game management. But when you're talking about predators, how do we, how can we tell, for example, you go out to a collared 
deer where that we got a mortality signal, right? They, we have these cool collars on them, right? And if they stay still for more than six or eight hours, we get a signal, um, sent to us via satellite. Uh, it says, Hey, your animal's dead. Go do, go figure it out. <laughs> uh, we hike out to the site, right? And you try to figure out, you know, a, you know, what's the proximate cause. Okay. You find your deer and it's, it's cached, right? It's got, it's partially buried under stuff. It's got, you know, uh, twigs and branches piled up on top of it. Um, partially buried with, with dirt. Um, you know, you can see that there's these really nice snippy scissor like cut marks, um, on some of the hairs been plucked out, um, around the wounds and you're like, okay, I'm pretty sure this is a cat, right? This is looking like a cougar. Um, how can you tell though, that the cougar, if the cougar didn't kill it, it would have lived to the next year and had fawns, for example, right? How do you, how do you do that? Well, we go out there and if we can, we try to find, um, a long bone. So a femur or a humerus, one of those long bones that has a really thick chunk of marrow in it. And um, we'll typically try to break that bone open to look at the condition of the marrow. Um, if there's other parts of the carcass left, we'll obviously look for, you know, subcutaneous fat stores and stuff like that to organ fat, um, you know, organ in the viscera, um, all those kinds of things. And, and the order in which the fat comes off of an animal is pretty good indicator of what its nutritional condition is. So it's a first on last off. Um, so the first thing to go when you're starving to death or using your stores is the subcutaneous. Then you burn up the fat around your organs. And finally, you start to burn the fat in your bone marrow. That's really, okay. really bad news. And uh, gotcha. so if you ever break an animal's long bone open and you don't see white waxy, you see any sign of pink, um, you know that animal's start, starting to burn bone marrow. Um, if, if the inside of that leg bone is like red jelly, anyone ever broken a leg bone open and seen the red jelly? Um, probably not because you're hunting animals that are not <laughs> starving to death. But if you do, if you ever come across a carcass in the woods that's relatively fresh, I encourage you, um, I, this sounds gross, but I carry a bone saw with me. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, just a little folding guy, pop it open, saw that bone open. It's really fast. You can do it in 30 seconds. Look at the bone, uh, the bone marrow. And if it's red jelly, that animal would not have recovered. You could start feeding it alfalfa tomorrow and it cannot recover from that. Like it is, it's done. It's the walking dead. And so if a cougar kills an animal like that, that's pretty clear cut, right? That animal's not going to survive to contribute to the population the next year. But let's say its bone marrow is fine, but doesn't have much fat um, around its viscera. How should we feel then? Um, it gets, you know, there's, you certainly get into shades of gray where it's really hard to make that call. And yeah. so often we end up not being able to make a call about a specific animal. And instead we have to go to big data. We have to look at a lot of different animals in the population, and we have to start looking at things like twinning rate. You know, how many fawns per female are we seeing? When twinning rates drop, that typically means that population is not in great nutritional shape. Um, We ultrasound them when we capture them. We can actually use a cool little portable ultrasound like a health clinic would use to look at fat on the rump uh, and on the back in a standardized quantitative way. Um, We can... Uh, do plant surveys, look at browse intensity, right? Anyone been out there in the woods and you see a plant um, that kind of, uh, we call it broomed, where the, the ends of the plant are like crazy puffed up, um, lots and lots and lots of twigs coming off of the end, really bristly in, instead yep. of just lo- lo- you know a few slender twigs. They're really bristly and they're kind of 
uh, tamped down, that's the sign of really heavy multi-year browsing pressure. Um, and so you start to, you, again, you're starting to put together these, these different lines of evidence that tell you where your herbivore population is at relative to its nutritional carrying capacity out in the environment. And that really will help you get a feel for, is, are, is predation likely to be limiting? Um, if they're right up against their against nutritional carrying capacity, low twinning rate, bad body condition when you catch them, lots of heavy browsing on preferred forage species, um, you may have a lot of, let's say, whatever, cougar mortality uh, or wolf mortality in your colored population, but it's probably not what's keeping a lid on your population growth. Right. Yeah. No, I I, uh, I totally, totally see that. Um, a few years ago, um, Dr. Ford at UBC and Jesse Zeman from the BC Wildlife Federation, they had Dr. Mark Hebblewhite up uh, to do some talks about um, predators and the research they're they're doing uh, or had done and they do they they've been involved in all this maybe you were too this wild stuff where they're actually doing like sort of like wildlife management unit scale experiments where it's like okay we're going to go in and like um, count the mule deer and then we're going to go in and like shoot the shit out of the cougar population and then we're going to send wildlife services in and obliterate coyotes and then see see what happens to the mule deer and compare and all this kind of stuff and and i, I really remember um <clears throat> some of the things he showed which was like basically if if the predators didn't get them in the winter time because you'd suppress the population then winter kills them and like if it's a if it's a bad winter like it's it's not a good winter for them like at the end of the at the end of the game the same number of deer die and it's like whatever a predator doesn't get winter's taking the rest of them so if you knock your predators back winter gets more of them if you're if you let your predators get high they get more but winter still caps it off kind of to the same level and that was a really really eye-opening kind of thing that there's just all these other things out there that if the nutrition's not good, if they're not going into the winter fat and healthy and um, fawns have had good, you know, summer nutrition and they got big chunky bodies, it's like something's getting you this winter. It's like there's a lineup of things and you ain't making it to spring. And But everybody else is always like too many wolves, too many cougars. And, and yeah, it's just, well, I think in in some ways it's really tempting, though, right? Because the habitat quality, you know, and, and just to be clear, there are absolutely situations where predators can limit the the prey population. Oh, like that absolutely. does happen, hundred yep. yep. percent. Um, but I don't think it happens quite as much as people give it credit for. And I think part of the reason that that it's uh, it's appealing to jump to its predators is because it sucks when the answer is its habitat, right? Because habitat is hard to fix. It's a lot easier to go whack wolves than it is to restore a landscape. It's just yeah, way totally. easier. <laughs> totally. And that's and, this is... and there's so many interest groups who don't want to restore the landscape, right? You know, we just published this caribou paper basically showing that caribou habitat loss is accelerating. Yeah. Right? They are entangled, they are listed, they are protected, and yet habitat loss for caribou is ex- for woodland caribou is accelerating. Um, across almost all of the herd ranges. And that's because there's things we want out of that habitat. 
right? Wants. As a society, there's, you know, <laughs> Two by minerals, fours, yeah. oil and gas, forestry. We want to use that habitat for other stuff. And we've decided collectively as a society that it's worth it. Um, and so we're killing carnivores hypothetically to buy ourselves time, right? To restore the habitat, but we're not restoring the habitat. No, we're not no, doing we're, it we're, at the rate that you would need to. Faster. Yeah. I, well, to be clear, people are restoring the habitat, but yeah, exactly. We're, we're messing up new habitat faster than we can fix the old stuff. And that is a hard conversation to have. It's a really depressing story to face head on. And I think, um, for a lot of people, it's easier to just try to make it a simpler story. You know, it, let's, let's, whatever, let's kill the predators um, yeah, and not fix no, the habitat. Totally. <laughs> it, it's interesting because, like, do you guys have bull trout in Idaho? We sure do. They're okay. awesome. I, I don't know if you've heard about this, but Curtis can talk about this. Like, this is not just a phenomenon with the furry clawed stuff, right? Like, Bull trout are a major predator, and well, Curtis can tell the story of what people used to do and think of bull trout, like back in the fifties and sixties. Oh yeah, it was it was. I hear horror stories that um, that it was the same thing. They're like these bull trout are in there, and they're killing the rainbow trout population, which where we are, rainbow trout are non-native actually. So these bull trout are killing West Slope cutthroat and rainbow trout. So they would catch bull trout and they would throw them up on the bank they would cut the tails off throw them back and they were a garbage fish for years like i i remember even like my grandpa telling me stories about oh yeah those dirty dolly varden we just used to throw i'm like oh geez like no these, these, <laughs> these, these 25 pound <laughs> now now it's like i'll have i'd have fishing clients from all over the world would like come here specifically to fish bull trout and they're absolutely staggered at at just the sheer number and the size like it's a, a world destination for probably it like arguably the best bull trout fishing in the world is 20 minutes from where i live like that's awesome what a beautiful fish oh my gosh oh, yeah. yeah isn't it just interesting like a huge predator like that um you know 50 years ago was just kill it, toss it aside, because um, it's impacting these other fish. We didn't even know whether or not it was. Like, I mean, they can only eat so much, and there's, like every other system, there's like a 100 cutthroat trout to each bull trout, and it's like they're not going to wipe out the whole, the whole fishery. But it, it was a social thing, right? Like, it was... Well, it's still, it's still happening, just not bull trout. Okay, so you guys, I'm sure, know what gar are. Really yes. cool predator yeah. fish, yeah. right? Yep. Just like prehistoric badasses um, can get enormous, um, just really neat animals. Top of the food chain. In a lot of parts of the U.S., they are considered trash fish. There's no limit on how many you can kill. Um, you don't have to eat them necessarily. You can throw them on the bank. Um, people go in and, you know, bow and arrow and spear fish them and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of just, you know, the other crazy thing about fish, okay, we're on a sidetrack, but we're talking about predators broadly. The other crazy thing about fish, right, is we don't care about fish pain. Can you imagine if we went in and, like, speared a whatever a deer through its side and it was like twitching on the spear and we had a trophy picture of that all smiley like 
no way, man. You'd never tolerate it. But we've decided that fish pain doesn't matter, which is fascinating because they're too far away from us. They're not fuzzy. So anyway, some of the stuff we still do to fish is just wild. Um, oh, I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, but the same people that talk about fair, fair yeah. chase and ethical. And don't get me wrong. I love to fish and I think they're delicious, but uh, I try to put them out of their misery pretty quickly, you know, get, no, I'm, get it done. Yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah, don't <laughs> let them flop around for a while. But yeah, it's just, uh, it, it's it's crazy how we got got here with, with the social attitudes towards this. And I, you know, a little bit when it... Uh, especially when it comes to wolves, um, maybe a bit on coyotes. I don't know what you both think of this, but I also feel that part of the polarization, you know, that we're seeing is we've got all this pressure from the non-hunting world and anti-hunting world that people call it on the hunting community. And it's like the hunters are attacked. They're a small percentage of the population. Every day you turn around, there's some sort of bad publicity about hunting. And it almost seems like it's the ability to go out and shoot predators. There's a season on wolves. Um, you might talk about this later, like what's going on in Idaho. The the bills that have passed to say like they want to reduce 90% of the, the population. And I think Montana is trying to follow suit and stuff with it. And um, most places in North America don't have bag limits on coyotes. And like, I, I can't help believe that for some, it's a FU people that don't like hunting and we're going to hunt these things and kill these things because they're killing our deer and elk. But part of it is, is we're just doing it um, because we can and it pisses you off. And it's like, Oh yeah. Now you know what we feel like when you're saying, Oh, hunters are just psychotic killers and trophy hunters and all this kind of stuff. And I, I can't help believe that part of this is, is just a, it's not a game management thing. It's not just a, like I enjoy to hunt predators or, or whatever. It's, it's a bit of retribution almost. And I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think maybe for some folks it's retribution. I think maybe more broadly, it's a, I think it's part of the bigger culture wars going on, right? Which I think has a lot to do with a perceived loss of control, loss of autonomy, loss of status by traditionally powerful groups you could think of within the wildlife world that's hunters for sure but this is this is what we're seeing across many parts of society right think about all the very reactionary things happening it's not just um very liberal (laughs) uh regulations on carnivores um but yeah i think it's i think it's a reaction to a perceived loss right um and and that's um, have you ever read um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman? No. Awesome book. It's a strongly recommend. has nothing to do with hunting and everything to do with human beings and uh, how our brains work. Um, but you've probably heard of the idea of loss aversion or something like it, where they basically did some really cool psychology experiments with folks. And people valued getting more of something like one more pencil or like one more penny or whatever, one more good thing that they wanted. You know, that was a good, thank you. I want one more of that thing. But what they hated was having something taken away from them. They already had 
way more than they wanted to get one more. They wanted to keep what they had. If you took away one of the thing, it hurt them much more than if you gave, than it made them happy to get another one. We call that loss aversion. And I think about this all the time with hunting, with wildlife management, with broader life and politics. Um, and it just resonates at a gut level, doesn't it? The idea of having something you already have and value taken away from you. You want to protect that. Um, you want to dig in and get behind the barricades and, and go to war for that, you know, especially if it's yeah. something that's really important to you. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's interesting for, for sure. And, and I guess if you, when it comes to the ability to hunt predators, if, you know, and, and I think that kind of feeds into what I was saying, maybe affirms that a little bit, that it's sort of like, yeah, you're still allowed to hunt these. And so it's kind of like, we're going to like rub your face in that a little bit because you're, you're trying to ban, um, bear hunting in California and you're trying to ban the use of, uh, hounds in Vermont and you're like, you know, trying to get sheep hunting in or ever, you know, stopped or whatever. So it, those are, those are the losses. Um, and the aversion is, is sort of like going, eh, kill the wolf, you know, kind of thing. And so, or even bigger than just, you know, the loss of a specific hunt or hunting privilege for a specific species, you know, is just this, I think, like you're saying, this feeling that I think quite a few hunters have that they're kind of beleaguered, you know, that the whole idea of hunting is maybe under attack. Um, and the idea that hunters, you know, even the idea that hunting is conservation, right? This very Teddy Roosevelt old school um, mm-hmm. vision of the, of the hunting conservationist. Um, you know, you're now getting pushback on that from some folks who say there's no way hunting can be conservation if you're killing them. Um, yep. And yep. so I think that feeling of the sand kind of eroding under under your feet, under our feet um, can elicit a pretty strong, uh, defensive response from folks. I'm I'm not saying it's right. I'm just trying to explain to myself at least why it feels like this really strong backlash is happening. You know, I do agree that a lot of these kind of wild predator regulations (laughs) or lack thereof, you know, it is, it is a response to something. Yeah. Yeah. It's not coming out of thin air. That's for sure. You know, and then, but on the flip side of that, I think it comes back to something you said a little bit earlier. There are places where your predator-prey dynamics are really out of whack and some really bad stuff is, you know, happening um, that's got the potential to drag like a whole ecosystem down because uh, of some sort of imbalance. And I do, I do feel... There are a tremendous amount of hunters out there that are trying to raise these flags on things and that are talking about proactive predator management. They're not interested in in causing species extinction. They're saying this wildlife management unit or something, it's really screwed. Like, you know, uh, this kind of happened here locally with our cougar population and it was just sort of like, the whitetails are booming. The cougars are feeding off them. They're booming. But the sheep and the mule, they're struggling a little bit. But proportionally, the cats were like having a disproportionate impact on sheep and mule deer. And mm-hmm. it's like hunters are like, they're like, oh, my God, like it is nuts out there. It's like, and they had a female quota. You know, the season was shut down with female, 15 females. And hunters are like, God, it's just like, 
you you don't you don't know what's going on out there. You need to listen to us, right? And I think there's a frustration when it comes to predator management that is rooted in, you know, we are seeing some things that are going on, and it's like, please, like, listen to us. And uh, um, I think there's probably a level of like knowledge that's valid um, that's leading to advocacy for more liberal predator management, not extinction. And um, it's falling on deaf ears or it, it, or the public's just going, oh, you just, you just want that so you can have more trophy bucks. And hunters are like, no, it's like they're going to wipe this sheep herd out there's only like 26 of them left from 200, you know, like those types of things. I feel bad um, that that's falling through the cracks in this predator management discussion too. Yeah. Well, and I think if there was more trust for each other's intentions on both sides, you could have those oh, kinds God. of nuanced <laughs> conversations, right? Like this is a situation where we've got a dwindling sheep herd, booming cougars because of the whitetails down the hill and if we want sheep to be here on the landscape, we're going to have to take out some cougars. Here's the science to back it up, right? And and if people had a more trusting relationship, you'd be in a room with people. And I think everyone could agree on that. I think there are, it gets really tricky. I'm so glad you brought up um, apparent competition, right? The rise of some prey species bolstering a shared predator that then whacks another prey species that's rarer on the landscape. Um, because that is just like a classic side effect of global change that we're seeing in so many places right now. Um, I am writing, uh, co-authoring a book chapter on whitetails right now. Uh, the whitetail management book um, that came out in 2013 is coming out, new episode, 10 years later, reboot, and um, I'm writing the section on Northwest whitetails, and I lobbied to include Western Canada. It wasn't even in there. Um, so don't worry, guys. There's going to be Canada in the mix, I said. You've got to have... Northern whitetails. Um, and a huge chunk of the story that I'm trying to, I'm doing the literature review for right now is all about, you know, what is driving the explosive growth of whitetails across um, the northwestern chunk of North America. You know, there's whitetails showing up on the border of Alaska now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's been some really great research showing that it's both land use change and climate change. It's both. Um, so we're having fewer deep snow winters, and then we're also, you know, building these disturbed landscapes, agricultural landscapes, and young successional landscapes that benefit white-tailed deer. Um, and you layer those th two things together, and you have this this expansion. And then, oh my gosh, if that's going to then feed predators, right? You've got all this deer biomass on the hoof. We expect potentially predators would respond to that with more predators, more more baby wolves and cougars and bears. Um, what the heck should we do about it? If it's bad for mule deer, for example, or bighorn sheep or some, or caribou. Um, yeah. Or white-tailed deer taking chronic wasting disease into right? caribou range of Alaska and stuff. Yeah. Or brain worm. Oh my gosh. Right. Oh, there's the brain all, worm from whitetails. that gnarly, gets into moose. Exactly. That's why there, um, for a while there, I don't know if it's still there, but there was a shoot on site order for, for both mule deer and white-tailed deer in interior Alaska. They're, uh, Kimberly Daw, the state veterinarian, is freaked out, <laughs> as she should be. But obviously, it's an enormous uh, border that's mostly really remote boreal forest, and the chance of actually being able to stop an invasion like mm -hmm. that is pretty much zero. Um, 
But I guess it comes back to these really interesting questions of, uh, are we willing to save populations of rare prey species in a newly, let's say, whitetail rich world, <laughs> for example, you're going to have to shoot predators forever, forever, unless you change land use or climate, the things that got you there. Um, yeah. you know, you got either, you got to fix the habitat or you got to stop global warming. No big deal. <laughs> right. So, which, which just leaves you in this really hard, honestly, ethical dilemma. You know, are you going to say, I want these herbivores here bad enough that I am willing to shoot predators every year till the end of time to keep them here? Um, you know, we actually talk about this a lot with endangered species, not game species, but endangered species. You call those conservation-reliant species, right, where you're they, you have to intervene again and again and again to keep that popu that wild population on the landscape. Yeah, yeah and we do absolutely. it. Absolutely, but it's expensive and it's kind of heartbreaking, especially when it means killing another animal to do it. And so, man, this is this dilemma is not going to go away. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. You know, and especially when you know part of wildlife management or game management, so the game species that hunters hunt and and eat and stuff. There's just this nasty narrative out there that when you try to talk about predator management and its relationship to abundance of game on the landscape, um, it that narrative is nasty. And it's like you immediately, like the hunters get labeled as trophy hunters. And it's just like you want to kill the predators because you want big antlers and horns. And it's really hard because I'm of the personal position of, Hunting has always been about food, and it still is to this day. Most people are out there hunting and putting some meat in the freezer, and we're trying to manage habitat, game, cumulative impacts, including some predators, to so that this flow of protein can meet some social ob objectives for some of us. And so predator management needs to be talked about in that context. It needs the science. We don't want to eradicate them because, you know, there is, there's value. But in certain cases, like it, it, it should be part of the equation because I see hunting as should be thought of as, as a form of sustenance and protecting hunting and using conservation to protect game species to me is, is in North America is also about food security. And predators kind of come into that discussion, but oh my God, it's just like, it's that trust issue. And it's just sort of like, nope, don't believe you. If you talk about, you know, um, wolf management or coyotes or, or whatever, it's just because you want some antlers. You just want to kill something. And it's like, no, I just want to make sure that the portion of us that are not taking up agriculture land that's getting our protein from a wild ecosystem can feed ourselves that way and we don't need more agricultural land to feed us it's got to involve a little bit of predator management but man that is just a narrative that does not stick with the non-hunting public and yeah totally and i think again some of that comes down to um not not there's not super trusted sources of information that everyone can agree on for these things mm. you know yeah. again if you're okay. going to communicate complicated, hard stories, 
um, who's going to do that work and uh, who, who trusts which voices that are telling these stories? I mean, I, I do think um, there's some really smart, proactive work being done by some hunters and organizations, but I also think there is a lot of shooting ourselves in the foot happening. Um, I think coming from that, that defensive crouch loss aversion standpoint, right. Um, which can look aggressive. It, I think it's defensive. It's like mama bear stuff, you know, what's mine is mine, but, but it looks aggressive often and, and it can be pretty, um, alienating for the non-hunting crowd, I think. And so I, it's so hard when we are afraid of losing something to come to conversations, um, kind of in an, in an open communication style that's not defensive like that, but it's, you just get in some really negative spirals, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and absolutely. The hunting, the hunting public says the non-hunting public don't understand them. The non-hunting public says all you guys want is, you know, trophy animals. You're just in it for the selfie, you know, and away we're off to the races, right? Name calling, lack of trust, et cetera. But, you know, you do public polling and the majority of the public supports, uh, it's more than, it's a large majority of the public supports hunting for food. Yes. They support hunting for food. Like really in, in both Canada and the U.S., people really get behind that. And so, okay, that just seems like an enormous opportunity. How do, how do you take that enormous area of agreement and grow solutions that people can agree on and grow trust um, around those solutions? Um, I don't have a great answer for it, but, uh, yeah. So one of the areas that you, I mean, you've done research and, and you've published some papers and stuff over the last few years and kind of the field of predators and predator management and, and predator prey dynamics. And you've got a couple of really cool research papers. One was this year and, and you were really looking at kind of, the socioeconomic side of predators on the landscape. Um, we hear a tremendous amount, you know, from the re- the ranching community, you know, about losses to predators, this direct, um, you know, a steer was worth, um, you know, $5,000, you know, or whatever to, to them or something like that. And they lost two and like the math is simple and the justification to get rid of them is, you know, based on economics, but you were doing some really kind of different stuff. Um, so I'd, I'd like to learn more about, um, you did one on the, the cougars and the, the rate of animals being hit on highways. And then some, another study I think was published in March of this year, which was kind of like the, um, sort of the positive negatives with predators on the landscape from a socioeconomic perspective. So, yeah. Um, it's, it's actually interesting that you mentioned ranching, um, those kind of shared rangeland landscapes are so interesting. Um, and they make up such an enormous chunk of the West, you know, and I think a lot of folks in Canada don't, don't think of themselves as living in rangelands, <laughs> but listen, if there's cows out there, it's a rangeland and maybe a forest, it's still a rangeland. And so these, these shared working landscapes are, are really fascinating to me as a, as a place to think about wildlife and society interacting, which can be positive and negative for the wildlife or for the humans involved. And yeah, I I started thinking about this during my PhD, which is when I did that 
cougars eating deer that would have gotten hit by a car thing. So basically we would call that an ecosystem service or a, a predation service that, that cougars would be providing in that case. But that exercise really got me thinking more broadly um, about, well, of course, all animals that have any connection to society have costs and benefits associated with them, ecosystem services and disservices. Um, you know, think about a, think about a deer, right? They may go in and eat someone's soybeans or browse a tree seedling that got planted and was going to grow into merchantable timber. Um, they could get hit by a car. They could, um, uh, pass on disease to um, domestic livestock or to other wildlife we care about. Um, they can host ticks that give us disease. Um, you know, you can come up with a litany of, of potential costs for a deer. Um, and then, of course, you can come up with a, with a also long list of all the awesome things that deer do for us, right? We like to see them. Some of us like to hunt them. Um, there's also what we call an existence value, which is a super interesting one. Um, it's, it's the value that we get out of just knowing an animal is out there, even if we never see it. So for example, I have some level of an existence value for, um, uh, an emperor penguin. I'm very unlikely to ever get to go to Antarctica to see one in person, to actually get that viewing value from seeing it with my own eyeballs. But I get some value from just knowing it's out there. And I would be sad if penguins went extinct and they didn't exist anymore. And so all of these things, um, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly are, exist for any wildlife species. And of course, it really changes, um, you know, a deer living in someone's backyard at that urban wildlife interface is going to have different costs and benefits than a deer living in Banff National Park versus a deer living in a park in downtown Chicago, right? So they're all going to have, um, the context matters to the costs and benefits, then, mm it gets a little more complicated when the animal in question is eating other animals that we care about, right? So this is where predators get so cool and so tricky to wrap our minds around. And I think we often um, talk about the costs, the direct costs of predators. They ate my cow. Um, they uh, scare me when I go hiking, so I'm less likely to go hiking. They um, eat, ate somebody's pet. Um, you know, those very Bear direct and killed a hiker and yeah, right. Yeah. They're, Cause they're very gut level dramatic, right? They really get our attention. The hair on the back of your neck goes up just thinking about it. Right. They're very visceral. Um, so those are the direct costs of predators. There's also direct benefits of predators though, that we don't spend a ton of time talking about, although that's changing. Um, for example, existence values, right. Or wildlife viewing values, folks who go to, on um, safari in Tanzania, seeing that lion, oh my gosh, highlight of the trip, right? Huge value there. Um, or all the people who are pissed when Cecil got killed, right? Their existence value in some way got violated. <laughs> they yeah. were sad he didn't exist. They were never going to see Cecil, but they were sad, right? So those are the direct and indirects of, of a predator, but then or those are the direct costs and benefits of a predator, but then, oh my gosh, here's where it gets cool and interesting, that lion ate a zebra. <laughs> what was that a good thing or a bad thing for society? Well, it depends on what the zebra was doing, right? If it was a zebra, you know, grazing in a national park, generating wildlife viewing values of its own, 
maybe that's not so great, right? Um, but if it was a zebra that was crop raiding on the borders of the park, only came out at night because it's super shy, because it's a crop raider, no one was ever going to see it, but it was going to incur all these costs from eating people's, um, you know, maize, uh, maybe that lion just did something kind of awesome by eating that zebra. So I think of those things as predation services and disservices, and it, and it gets complicated pretty quickly because it depends on the prey. <laughs> Um, yeah. And the context, like you said, right? Yeah. So um, in the eastern U.S. where it's like millions of deer and cars are impacting each other every year, like it's a big deal. So like a a 10% decrease in automobile accidents and injuries is a big thing. Right. Uh, where maybe out in the West, it's sort of like um, maybe not quite a big a deal, but it's like, one big, huge mule deer buck that a cougar takes down in Idaho, that's a big freaking social deal if people see that, right? So right. I, I, get, I get what you mean context-wise. That but is- if that was a giant mule deer buck in the middle of the Frank Church wilderness, it was almost a 0% chance it was going to get harvested, right? Whereas if it was a big mule deer buck in one of the easy access GMUs, um, those two bucks, even though maybe they were biologically, maybe they were twins, right? (laughs) Same genetics, same rack, you know, there, that predation event means two different things for society, depending on where that prey got eaten. So I guess for me, it's really important to at least think about these things because predators are really rare compared to their prey, right? There's always just tons more prey than there are predators. Um, it's, it's a pyramid scheme, right? You got the You've got the rare carnivores on top, and they need lots of prey to support them. Um, and uh, so you're always going to have, you know, a cougar eating, let's say, 25 deer a year or whatever that number is, or a, or a wolf pack killing, you know, X number of elk a year. Um, so, so we would expect that most of those costs and benefits of a predator are going to come via eating those prey. Because they're just going to do it so many times in a year, right? Like a grizzly's not at all likely to attack you, an individual grizzly. Um, but a grizzly's still got to eat. It's going to go do its predation. <laughs> um, a grizzly's a bad example, right? Because they have really broad diets. Some of them eat almost entirely plants. But to, we'll talk about a, an, an obligate carnivore, a cougar, right? Like that cougar is yeah. going to kill stuff. Absolutely. It's not necessarily going to attack a, a hiker. Very unlikely to happen. Um, but it's it's very likely to be out there chugging away eating deer and wh- and so whether it's a net benefit or a cost to society for that cougar to exist is mostly going to depend on how costly or valuable those prey animals were. So yeah. anyway, that's yeah. the premise, and it's really hard to put values on these things, but it's really interesting to think about. So, so is that an area like do you think in North American wildlife science when it comes to predator science and feeding science into wildlife management that like, is it absent? Like, is, is this sort of looking at predators on the landscape kind of from a socioeconomic perspective? Is this, is this a new thing or is this just something that's been going on for a long time that we haven't heard about? Um, I think we've done a lot of work on predator costs right? We, human wildlife conflict. We do a lot of work valuing how much wildlife costs us, whether it's an elk eating someone's haystack or, 
you know, a wolf killing a calf. Um, but the, the benefits part, those ecosystem services, we're really just getting started on a lot of that. Um, I will say the, you know, the value that hunters get from killing, you know, a target animal, that's actually one of the areas that we've done more work on in terms of, you know, ecosystem services <clears throat> than, uh, than other areas. But there's obviously such a wide range of potential ecosystem services that both predators and prey are providing that we have, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. You know, there, there's other areas where, you know, again, costs, you know, we're really good at, you know, crop depredation, right? The huge literature on, on ungulates or rats or pigeons, you know, all the things that damage crops. How much do they damage crops? What tools might we use to prevent them from, from doing that damage? Um, but uh, yeah, not a lot of time spent talking about what that flip side is. And of course, ideally, we'd like to somehow magically be able to like do the ledger, right? Like cost, benefits. Okay, net value. We'll we'll never fully be able to do that. But I think it can definitely guide us towards being more strategic in how we manage conflict, for example. Okay. Um, Or or how we avoid destroying really beneficial animals. So for example, uh, every now and then, you know, some... Hollywood movie star bear from Yellowstone will get killed or uh, one of the Denali wolves that, that people see all the time from the park road will leave the park and get whacked. And there's a reason that that makes the news, right? A bunch of people lost their benefits from that individual animal, right? Um, and did the hunter, the hunter just yeah. got the normal benefit from killing it, right? Um, They just got the benefit they would have gotten from killing any other grizzly bear or wolf. But the the benefits that we lost uh, from that animal on the other side were huge. So couldn't we not kill that particular animal? (laughs) So we get to preserve those benefits of that, you know, of that animal that people just really get a ton out of. On the flip side, right, you could think about maybe... um, 80% 80% of damage to cornfields is caused by a handful of elk. That's certainly the case in South Idaho, for example. Um, you know, I had a master's student working on this issue. And you get a few elk, they get in, they, you've got corn pivots out in the desert. It's super bizarre looking when you look at an aerial image. You know, these big, bright, bright green circles in the sagebrush. Oh, I've seen those flying. Yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. I know what right? you mean. And you can imagine for the, for the right enterprising elk, they're like, you know, whoopee, I found heaven. I am not moving all summer long, right? And so they sit in there. They got food. They got water. Um, I've been in there. It's scary, man. It's a jungle in there, 12-foot tall corn. It's like wet and dripping, you know. Um, and, and just a few elk doing that cause millions of dollars of damage, right? And so quick, can you take out those elk? who are extremely costly and also, by the way, very unlikely to be available to a hunter or to a wildlife viewer, you're never going to see them. They only come out at night. They spend the rest of the time in the corn. You know, it's just gotcha. they're, not a, they're not available to provide us with benefits we might get from them. And they are huge costs of that individual. So I think about it a lot as a way, like a, a, a guiding mental framework to try to be smart about how we manage wildlife, to Keep as many benefits as we can while minimizing costs, and hopefully everyone feels better. Yeah. No, I, 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 I you know, I like that idea in modern wildlife management is, is you know, is looking, 
because so much of these, we had this conversation with um, Adam Ford in the last episode was kind of like science provides decision makers with information to make these trade-off decisions, which just about every human decision in wildlife management or conservation or natural resources is kind of a trade-off. You got to take this and know that this, you're giving this up is, is bringing in like this socioeconomic side of wildlife management or, or predators, um, as, as more information that's coming from science to, to, to better inform decision making, which if they're facts that are put on the table, maybe they will, um, look more favorably to the people that would be just like, nope, you know, don't increase the cougar season. Nope. I just leave them alone. Let nature take its course where all of a sudden they're going like, Oh, okay. Like, you know, they're looking at some of this quantitative, you know, pluses and minuses and, and then saying, okay, society, you got option A, B or C. And then, then maybe more people that like care about you know, cougars uh, or predators or wolves or whatever might make a little bit more rational decisions about, you know, uh, about their managed or, you know, hunters might be willing to see things a little bit differently when, when we have more than just biological information or cost, like you said, the cost to game species, but we're looking at it from. Yeah. I, I think, you know, a, it's a shared language. Right. You know, it's a lot of the stuff we're talking about valuing existence values and stuff. You can't buy and sell that on a market. There's no capitalist market where you can figure out its value. Right. Can't go to Amazon.com for it. So we're we're trying to assign a dollar sign value to that. It's hard and it's an inexact science. But um, at least it gives people a, a common metric to talk through things with. Um, for people who actually care about wildlife already, whether you're, you know, a hunter or a, um, uh, you know, animal rights person or, you know, whoever you are, you already have skin in the game and, and a common language is valuable. But I think the other thing it's good for, you know, you'll actually hear a lot of folks in the, in the kind of old school conservation community say, you should, you shouldn't be putting a dollar sign on nature, man. Like that's not right. It's, it's priceless. (laughs) Um, and I have heard the same thing yes. here in British Columbia from indigenous peoples, that whole economic valuation of mm-hmm. especially wildlife, um, that, that is, doesn't align with some nations and beliefs. I, I get sure. that. I get that. And any attempt to put a dollar sign on it is going to be wrong. The question is how wrong is it? Um, and it's going to violate some people's whole, um, viewpoint and belief system. But my argument for why it's maybe worth doing anyway, is that there's this whole crowd of people we haven't talked about much yet on this podcast. And it shows up back to the wildlife value survey as a as an increasing group. Um, And it's what the the wildlife value survey folks call distanced. Um, It's people who don't care. They don't care about wildlife at all. Good, bad, traditional, mutualist, whatever. They don't give a hoot, not a part of their lives, not a part of their worldview. Um, And some of those people make decisions that affect wildlife, (laughs) that affect our land use, our transportation, affect climate change, affect all, you know, um, all this stuff intersects, right? And so you come back to economics and discussing the ecosystem services provided by an ecosystem or a species or whatever. And again, 
a shared language where you can talk about the value that nature holds to somebody who does not have any like intrinsic value for nature, right? They don't just love it for existing. They don't think it's priceless. <laughs> um, what where, where side of the balance sheet is that thing on that you're talking about? Well, yeah. I would argue that if you, if you don't go ahead and try to value nature, it gets a zero in their balance sheet, in their mental math. Um, it's not priceless. It's priceless. It's just not valued at all in their, in their decision calculus. And, uh, I think that's maybe the most dangerous thing of all. Yeah. Yeah, There's that that news clip from that, um, that Patagonia documentary, um, from rendezvous. What was that one called? Um, was that the one about public land? Yeah. I think it was called. Anyways, but but there was that uh, some some big business guy in a news clip, and he's going off about some public land stuff or whatever, and he's like, "Can anybody tell me which piece of it is mine so I can sell it?" And right. It's like, whoa, that's like that's <laughs> a very aggressive statement. You're like, holy smokes! Right. So he doesn't perceive himself as getting any benefit from public land, right? So how do you communicate to a guy like that? what his hundred acres of public land or whatever it may be is, is doing for him. Um, whether it's cleaning the air and water, capturing carbon, you know, creating more of something or less of something bad that he actually cares about. You know, that is the, that is the challenge of our times is reaching those folks who don't care or don't think it's valuable at all. I just, that's part of why it breaks my heart to see, uh, you know, some environmental folks, and some hunting folks fighting each other, like, guys, we really should all be on the same team. We all fundamentally care. We're in the group that cares. Um, and, you know, we should be teaming together to come up with strategies to conserve the things we care about and also share with those who don't yet care why they should care. Yeah. No, that's that's a really good way of looking at it because, you know, we always we always hear that, um, you know, hunters are a small part of the population. They're two to four percent or something like that. And and non-hunters are, you know, and it's like, OK, that's saying everybody that doesn't hunt is a non-hunter. But you're saying, like, take the non-hunters and separate them by the non-hunters who actually care and have knowledge about things in an ecosystem versus the non-hunters that have never even heard of this stuff or don't care. And I, I would hazard a guess that non-hunters that care a lot about wildlands and wildlife are probably a small percentage of the North American or global population now. Like literally that group as well is outnumbered by the people that are sort of like don't know, don't care. Um, just is my investment getting a return is whatever. And can I buy a new such and such? And well, I think luckily, I think you're being slightly too pessimistic. The numbers actually show that that distanced segment of the, of the population is in the, is in the low double digits. They are not the majority, but they are growing, which is what scares me. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, Hmm. Um, I think more, a, lot, a lot of people do care. They might not care as much as you and I do, right? Because they may not have as much of a vested interest or as many hobbies and, and passions that take them there. But a lot of people do care. Um, 
And I think our challenge is to not let that distant segment of the population get bigger, to not let the really powerful interests um, that make a ton of money off of degrading nature uh, steal the conversation and and make people think that there's horrible trade-offs between their well-being and health and nature. <laughs> um, you know, we, we have some really huge existential challenges and, oh my gosh, we should totally be doing it together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, that's a good point. It's just, it's hard to get people pulled away from this, these polarized debates. And if there's one thing right now that seems to like throw the wall up, it's like anything about predators, uh, yeah. Dead wolf pitcher, a bear, like whatever. It's just, it just, man, it just, it keeps that polarization, keeps people separated. And there's people out there that feed off of that too. They want the segregation. They, they don't want actually those groups coming together. Um, I think there's maybe different reasons why that sometimes it's just the ideologies. It's like, no, we don't want to come together with the hunters because at the end of the day, we just want them to go away because we don't agree with hunting. So let's just keep the divide. Let's keep the argument. Let's keep fueling the fire because eventually we'll, we'll get rid of them. Um, I think there's like a little bit, there's no vested interest in, um, you know, in having us around. Uh, it's, and it's emotional, like the whole predator furs and claws and fuzzy things is is uh, is an emotional thing that uh, may maybe that barrier is never going to get broken down. So, well, I think um, I think the what you're saying about the emotional component is so important. Um, I think folks on both sides, um, the wolf huggers and the wolf haters. Uh, are coming from an emotional place. Well, but I, I, but I, back to folks who are making hay off of it, that emotion <laughs> is powerful rocket fuel, right? So, yeah. um, sure, maybe we all have, uh, you know, emotional triggers around predators, both good and bad. You know, we might make a f- us feel different things depending on who we are. But people, I think, absolutely are using that t- to get whatever it is that they want. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> this might be, get me in a little bit of trouble, but, uh, you know, maybe I'll, I won't name names. That'll, that'll keep me safe. Um, but some of the ENGOs, I have right? This friend. Friend of a friend. friend no, yeah. but there, there's some ENGOs, for example, that use wolves in fundraising emails all the time. All the oh, time. Oh, gosh, yeah. And, and the information is, frankly, it's not accurate. It is not accurate. You know, wolves are not going extinct. You might not like them getting killed. That might be something that you find ethically repugnant, but they are not going extinct again. That is not happening. Um, You you know, even Idaho's, you know, up to 90% harvest limit. It's not possible. Have you seen a map of the state of Idaho? Um, Most of it is, you know, remote, hard to get to, hard to access um, public land, you know, some of that public land is easier to access. Um, some of it's private and very easy to access. But most wolf packs in Idaho, they're not out in the Snake River Plain, right? They're in mm. 
oh, they're already on, you know, they're on public land. A lot of them are, are pretty hard to get to. Um, I'm not saying a lot of wolves won't get killed, but that 90% goal, like that is pie in the sky. It's not going to happen. Um, even paying people, right? They're going back to some kind of weird version of a bounty. You know, it's, it's like, okay, but most people have jobs, you know, unless you make that bounty really high. And, and maybe the bounty's high enough that a couple of guys, you know, start up an outfit and quit their jobs and just trap wolves full time for a couple of years. Okay, you've taken out the easy access packs. Congratulations to you, right? How are you going to get the packs yeah. in the Frank Church? You know, it's yep. just um, keep going and put your kids through college now. Good luck. <laughs> it's not a practical long term goal to keep yeah, them gotcha. at that 120 right above the threshold when the Endangered Species Act would kick in, right? That it's it's not practical. What it is is extremely polarizing, right? It's red meat to the base politically. And it is owning the libs hard. <laughs> and um, it's a communication strategy. You're signaling your values, right, when you do that. Um, and the ENGOs are simultaneously using it to raise a ton of money, you know. So it's like it, there's, there's actually, you know, I, I'm not saying that ENGOs want, wanted this to happen, but certainly it is being capitalized on to raise money, Um probably by both sides. And so I guess what I'm, what I'm getting to, you know, is that yes, people have strong feelings about carnivores, but then in the polarized times we're living in, people are then using that and fanning the flames and poking the bear, pun intended, you know, to, um, get what they want out of it. Um, and, uh, that makes it really complicated to fix, but I also think it, it leaves us with slivers of hope because I, I think if you stopped planning the flames, uh, <laughs> things would simmer down again. You know, this is a, this is a, in some ways a manufactured situation. Um, yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. And part of the manufactured situation are these groups that have a financial vested interest in, in that, um, that polarization, that debate, that outrage that happens, uh, they make money off of it because it becomes uh, leading stories in the news. Like we see this now, like a single individual animal um, happened uh, late this winter. The wolf that left Banff National Park, you know, went for a walkabout, got shot in Montana uh, somewhere. Like it's front page news, like an individual animal right and and so yeah there's there's a vested interest in in blowing all that stuff you know up into the media and selling it and getting all the emotion and it's it's your industry it's it's your business right so yeah and I, yeah it's it's interesting you know uh my mom gets emails from some of these groups and she's a smart lady and she loves wildlife, but she will email me. She'll forward it and be like, is this, is this accurate? Like what's what they say wolves are going extinct in Idaho. And I'm like, no, not, you know, not accurate. But, but most people don't have a wildlife professional in the family who they're going to fact check with. <laughs> they're going <laughs> to read that coming from what they think is a trusted source and, uh, and believe and believe it. So I don't necessarily know what the solution is to this, but we have a communication problem on our hands. Yeah, well, 
I guess that's part of where science comes into it, right? Is, is, is stepping in a little bit and, and communicating the facts and bringing in the balance and showing what's right and what's, what's not or whatever, and not making decisions for everybody, but just to say, well, actually that's not, you know, you know, the truth or the facts or what we currently know about a situation. And I think a lot of scientists are not yet comfortable with doing that in a more public facing way. Um, there are some big exceptions to that. I think, you know, Mark Hebblewhite is obviously a standout example of not being afraid of that role. But um, I think a lot of us for too long have relied on what I call trickle down science which is the idea that you publish it in a peer-reviewed journal and the right people will get the information somehow magically. Even though it's locked up behind a paywall and written in intellectual gobbledygook that most people don't understand, <laughs> um, and there was no press release and you didn't put it anywhere where people could find it other than that, you know, um, I think that's got to change. It, it really does. And I, I didn't get any media training in grad school or as a postdoc, you know, I've never taken a training in my life, and, and most of us haven't. And I think most of us are, are uh, you know, scared witless of it, you know, that we're going to say the wrong thing, we're going to do it wrong, we're going to get in trouble. Um, but I would love, love, love to see that change. I mean, obviously, what people absolutely must do is they need to smash the subscribe button on your podcast, communication number one. Um, but after they've done that... Um, yeah, I'm still trying to work out what my role is. Um, and I, I would actually love to hear what other people think about that. You know, would you trust hearing from a scientist directly? What's the medium that that scientists should use? Um, right, right. How, how does that work? How to get science into the hands of, of people trying to make these hard decisions? Curtis, you look like you got something to say. Yeah, this, this is kind of... Um, uh, the, one of the recent Joe Rogan podcasts I listened to, he had Neil deGrasse Tyson on. And they were talking about um, teaching and people learning. And because Joe Rogan said, he's like, you're like hands down one of the best scientific educators on the face of the planet. You're very good at that. And he goes, kind of says something along the lines of like, if you have a teacher in a classroom and there's a couple students that aren't doing well and they're not learning... 90% of teachers, 99% of teachers will say, ah, you know, screw, like it, they just, they just don't get it. Like they pass the blame that it's not, it's not them being the teacher, but he says, as someone who has that knowledge and your job is to, to portray that knowledge to other people, it's like, there's probably 1% of school teachers out there that if they see a student who's got, you know, an F in the class, it's like, that's me. I need to figure out how I can better communicate that knowledge to even just that one person because if that one person fails, then I failed as an educator. And so, yeah, just, I mean, I, 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 science yeah. stuff can be super dry. Like, I mean, I, I've loved science since I was a little kid and I like, I kind of like get glazed over at some stuff. You're like, what? And, and it can be boring so it's it's trying to figure out how to communicate that in a way that's more relatable and and enjoyable for people to kind of to listen to right I mean one thing I've struggled with is you know there are 
you know, a, a growing number of professional science communicators out there. And there's, there's grad programs that train people in this, um, you know, whether it's, you know, oral or written or videography, you know, and, and that's so awesome. And ideally that those, those are exactly the right people to try to get science to the public, right? They, they have the communication skills, they're trained. They also, you know, ideally have at least some science background or at least, you know, a, passionate love of science that's led them to understand the process in a rigorous way. But, but one thing that seems tricky for me is it also feels like people want to get it directly from the source. Like the farther you get from mm-hmm. um, the people doing the research, the less trust there is in that source um, yeah. as a valid conduit for the science. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I wonder about that. Like Neil, right? Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, he, he's not doing as much active research now, but he is an astrophysicist. He also happens yeah. to be an incredibly gifted communicator who has spent a huge chunk of his professional life communicating science. Yeah. yeah. Charismatic and funny and... <laughs> Amazing outer space-themed clothing. I mean, what's not yeah, to love? Yeah, he's, he's got, got it all. So, like, yeah, there's, like there's lessons Nye. to be learned there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Uh, Earlier... Uh, Earlier this spring, there was the Netflix show that Seaspiracy came out. Oh, God. And science um, Twitter was not happy. Oh, we'll just put no. It that like, way. <laughs> you know what? And so I've, I've, I haven't told this story yet, but I kind of think it puts in, fits in here about science communication in your question. So, so that came out and the science community attacked that thing going your facts were wrong you misquoted that study you know it was like there was the one thing but you didn't say the 10 other things like just totally went at it that way saying this this whole thing is like this whole film is invalid and the the um your main conclusion was is that in order to save the ocean and the planet people need to stop eating seafood and it's like your facts are wrong and all all this kind of stuff and i went I, I kind of stepped back from that and I went, but you know what? It's a two hour documentary that got on the Netflix that has 200 million subscribers all over the world. If 5% of those people went, oh, that's the call to action. The impact that that one film had on <clears throat> a message that they believed was right in a matter of a couple of months was staggering. And so I also kind of looked at it from the perspective was it was kind of like this story, you know, about this person. And then these facts and stuff were kind of inserted from different scientific studies. But the bottom line was the central figure, the central thing of that story was a person. Mm. It wasn't the research. It wasn't the conclusion. It was about this person who wanted to do something good for the ocean, started on the straws, then picking up garbage on the beach and each thing kind of led them on. It's a bigger, it's bigger, it's bigger than this, it's bigger than this, right? You follow this person and it's a fundamental principle of storytelling because I teach storytelling um, at different times of the year is a story is about a character who goes on a journey and you want your, your listeners, your audience, your followers to identify with the character. They learn to love them and they go on this journey with 
this person who then usually goes into like some sort of conflict and and like then they look like they're going to lose to the bad guy and then they they champion and then there's the moral of the story like that's the f- and and it's honestly I actually think it's a it's a big flaw in science communication right now that's trying to put the facts and the research out front where it should be like hi my name is Sophie and I grew up and I believed this when I was a girl and this led me to here and that led me to there and this has gone to here and I really had a tough time here and I was ready to give up and oh my God and I was the worst person ever. And now you have the public following a scientist because they love you. They love you as a character and they're going on this journey with you as you're explaining your research. And it's like, they're identifying with you, not the facts, not the conclusion, not the data. And I real, honestly, I really feel that's a piece that's missing in science communication. Well, there's a few total standouts, right? Think about Jane Goodall. Totally narrative. Let's get these chimps names. You did not do that in science. But also Jane herself as the primary character of her story, right? I mean, and there's other exceptions to that rule. But I think in general, we are trained to be really uncomfortable with that. Um, We are trained to, as much as possible, remove ourselves from the story. Um, in, In every way, we try to buffer the science from our own biases and experiences through randomization, right? We don't just pick things. We run it through a computer or flip a coin or whatever so that our our biases don't affect the choices of which animals we capture or which plants we measure or or which study areas we choose. You know, we're always trying to control for or randomize or all of these science words that add up to removing ourselves from the story. And yeah, I think most people are really uncomfortable with it. I think we have no training in how to do it. Mm. Um, the, the other thing, though, that, that Seaspiracy brings up is, okay, well, why did Seaspiracy get made? Right? Who at Netflix said yes to that story without talking to a scientist? And how do you change that process? How many, oh, my God, how much money and time did they throw at I me? Mean, beautiful videography, right? Really high-quality visual storytelling. ton of investment in that piece. And it's compelling, right? How do you get equally compelling stories that are also true told? (laughs) Yes. You know, think about the impact that the true conspiracy could have had, right? Like a true, still, you know, high quality narrative, good arc, all the things, but fact based. There's no reason that that can't get made. Facts aren't boring. (laughs) They don't have to be if they're if they're told through narrative, like you're saying. Um, and, and the people are identifying that narrative with a character who's going on that journey, presenting those facts. And that's somebody that they trust and believe and have empathy. David Attenborough, right? That guy. Oh man. Um, he's got to have, you know, incredibly high trust, Sir David. Um, funny, funny story. When I was little, I wanted to be Sir David Attenborough when I grew up. Um, and at some point I figured out I was never no matter what I did, going to be an old British man. Um, With the accent and the deep voice. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There was just no hope for me. Um, so, I, so I gave up and became a wildlife biologist instead. But oh, um, wow. yeah, I just, there's not enough Sir Davids. And then whatever that vetting process is for a film like Seaspiracy sure failed. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you just taking some, I mean, everybody knows David Attenborough and the BBC and planet earth and stuff. And I'm just like, so, so he is trustworthy. He's a character that people, um, believe he, he takes you on this scientific journey, but as him, as the character, right? Like, you know, he's going through the jungle, he's doing these things. So, so he still is like the center of the story. So just imagine him telling this narrative about predators in Western North America, you know, and here in Montana, there's the ranch and these cows and, you know, and this, and then, and then, and then there on the horizon, the wolf pack, they're looking at the cows, you know, and, and it's just like, he, he could probably tell that, you know, and a very good story. And at the end of it, get people going, okay, yeah, maybe there's a few too many wolves and that's not a bad thing to do a little bit of that with hunting or control or something like that. Like he just seems like a person that could tell that story and, and not get death threats. Like when the show is over kind of thing. Right. So. Totally. Yeah. It'd be a, but you know, telling a story like that is a lot higher risk than the usual stories he tells, even for somebody like Sir David, but certainly for a less established person, you know, telling, telling a story about, you know, a cheetah chasing an impala, you know, on the Serengeti. Um, there's a lot less human skin in the game in that interaction. You know, there's uh, uh, there's there's a lot fewer. Um, I don't want to say fewer emotions because that's part of why we watch those things, right? There are emotions involved, but um, yeah, there's there's going to be less controversy around when that cheetah catches the gazelle. <laughs> Yeah, totally, totally. Ah, uh, wow. Um great conversation. Lots of lots of interesting stuff there. I'm really really interested kind of like, you know, you've you've got this very balanced kind of view on predators and predator management and working kind of on that new edge of the socioeconomic stuff. I I do really think that that is important. And, and I love what you said about, you know, like how that economic valuation becomes a really important part of conversation in, in reaching that segment of the population that are the ones that don't know, don't care. Um, that was a big eye opener for me in this episode. I, I never really looked at things like that. Right. I was probably more of the one that sort of like, there's just the two sides and it's like, no, there's this third chunk of people out there that, that were, and you said, it's just, they're missing from this conversation and, and that's, that's interesting. And, um, yeah, I think having people understand more about predator, predator management from the socioeconomic trade-off things, like we could say, you know what, it's easier just to pay for the dead cows because this is what it's worth on the other side of the fence. And then it's going to be like, nope, that on the inside of the fence, the negatives are too costly socioeconomic wise. And this is probably your best management option on the outside of the fence. And, and that just seems much more objective and fair um, to kind of land on, on some science for decision makers than, than the fear mongering that I think that's kind of dominating this right now. So 
Yeah, and I, I think and hope that, that it will also lead us in directions, um, you know, in the future. How do we take the folks who are getting more benefits from carnivores existing than costs and, and take some of those benefits and transfer them back to the people who are paying a lot of the costs but not receiving as many of the benefits? It could be market-based solutions like um, predator-friendly beef labels, that kind of thing. You know, you get a few more cents per pound per calf. Um, when they go to market, if you tolerate carnivores, or it could be um, non-market stuff like, you know, changing tax structures and, you know, payment for depredations or payment for coexistence, which is interesting, like paying Sami reindeer herders for uh, successfully breeding wolverines within their calving grounds. Um, I think there's a lot of people thinking about this stuff, and it really does give me a lot of hope. And um, yeah, I'm also really grateful to you guys for telling these stories to the public and, and bringing the science to the public. So thank you for the opportunity. No, you bet. It was great to have you on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Predator-free labeled beef. So on sea spiracy, I learned that dolphin-free tuna is not dolphin-free tuna. The tuna industry is killing all the dolphins. And they're just telling you it's dolphin-free. So, There's so no I'm, dolphins I'm, in the tuna. Probably. No, they just killed them to get them out of the way to get at the tuna. So uh, right, right out of the hopper, the predator-free beef, people are going to be like, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, well, it's like, it's I, like I, organic. I How do you tell something's organic, right? There's a certification process, and it's a pain in the ass, and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, you can trust the label. Yeah. It, isn't everything organic? That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a carbon-based yeah. life form. That's organic. Yeah. Wow. Well, no, appreciate you coming on the show. It's yeah. uh, been fantastic. And folks, if you want to put a face to a picture, go find Reindeer, Sitka Blacktail Story. It's a great, great, great film that is more about it, it it's what I just talked about. It's it's a story about you that goes on this journey as a wildlife scientist into hunting and stuff. And it's it's you're the main character, and it's that journey that people go on. It's 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 not your traditional hunting film, and so that that is a fantastic case if you want to watch that film and see what I'm talking about of you know of a scientist that goes on a journey, and you're like really excited for her to go on this hunt and get a deer and stuff and. So, and good hey, story. the deer tasted good too. So, I win bet. win. <laughs> just, just got gobbled up quickly. I bet. <laughs> oh, always. Oh, cool. Thanks again. All yours, Curtis. Sweet. So today's episode is once again supported by iHunter. If you are interested in getting their public land subscription, head over to web.ihunterapp.com and use the code THC podcast for 20% off your first year of their public land subscription. It's available for all the Canadian ones they have. I think they only have Canadian ones now. I don't know if they have the, the U.S. version anymore. Yep. But uh, anyways, yep. yeah. it's, it's available for uh, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. Honestly, yeah, we talk about this all the time. If you guys haven't checked it out, you really should. Uh, we use it out hunting. I was actually using it the other morning. I was sitting out on my deck having a coffee and trying to figure out how to get into a back basin I've been looking at uh, all winter that happens to be blocked by 
private farmland at the bottom. Uh, it works. I did figure out a way to get through it. I'm just going to have to put that through the test. Doesn't mean it's not going to suck getting up there because it's probably no trail, but you can figure out how to get around it. So check them out. 20% off THC podcast. All that information is in the show notes. And thanks again to the Fisher Creek Brewery for sponsoring this episode. Summer weather is here, so why not enjoy a cold beverage from the folks over at Fisher Peak Brewing? We love the beer, and we love that they are such a big supporter of what we do here, which is helping to bring you guys the knowledge and facts on science, conservation, and responsible hunting. So thanks to both of those folks for helping us out. We really appreciate it. Go show them some support, folks. Thanks. You know, and we've been talking about, you know, predator, predator management, predator science, and some new things, and it's all been about North America. So we're thinking um, black bears, grizzly bears, cougars, wolves, coyotes, you know, kind of traditionally kind of thinking about about those in this context. Just before we started this podcast, I was looking at this, this research paper that was relatively new. Uh, this is the title, uh, Reckoning with an animal that sees us as prey living and working in crocodile country. <laughs> so I always put a lot of this predator management, prey, fear, science, economic valuation in perspective in North America. And we're talking about predators when the topic of those freaking things comes up crocodiles. I'm just like, that's like another planet, another this discussion wouldn't even like fit in when you're talking about those things. Well, if we had even a fraction of some of the critters that were here 12,000 years ago, we wouldn't be having the same conversation. Imagine <laughs> if we still had short-faced bears. Get rid of the cave bears. The North American, well, short-faced bears even worse. Hypercarnivorous, super short-faced, big carnassials for shearing, not an omnivore. Long legs. Oh, my gosh. Um yep. Big, those big wolves that were like dire wolves. Yeah, we had yeah. the borophagines, these like monster North American hyena things. Um, oh man, what else did we have that was cool? We had the North American lion, biggest big cat to ever live. Um, so we would, yeah, Wolverine um, relatives that were like nine to 12 feet long. Can you imagine? Oof. Savage giant weasels. Anyway, so we'd be having a whole different conversation. If we had any there of those a, animals. There was a prehistoric uh, squirrel that had fangs. Pretty sure that's from a kid's movie. No, it was, was real. It not the one Somebody asked me. I was working on trying to get a squirrel hunting season here in British Columbia. Uh, Idaho has a season. Uh, it's like two or three years now for the red squirrel um, for hunting those for food. And I, I've been working on one here in British Columbia and somebody asked me and it's like, well, can you actually trophy hunt squirrels? So I'm like, Oh, I don't know. Like, well, how's that? All? <laughs> and so I'm like, well, I'm like, Holy crap. Look at these prehistoric things. It's like, they were big and they had big long fangs. And so I think you yeah. could get a Boone and Crockett score off of them. So, yeah. well, let's not it's get nice started ivory. on the ancient, the ancient giant beavers that were like 10 feet tall. There's, yeah, you would add there. animals to the predator list that we don't that normally think of as yeah. predator Holy rhinos running you down, man. Well, or, um, oh, uh, entelodonts. Oh, my gosh, you guys. Google entelodont. Giant pig relatives, like Oof. 10 feet tall, huge teeth, 
So just imagine like the worst wild boar you've ever seen, which they're already pretty savage, and give it just, you know, steroids. Gigantic, those gigantic birds. They were sort of like yeah, uh, the terror birds. Like, yeah, they had like huge beaks, like a like a parrot, yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. they were like psychotically like ran yeah. things down and killed them, and but they were like huge, like an ostrich. Oh man. Yeah. Again, never leaving we're, the house. We're, <laughs> we're living in the good times, folks. Yeah. We, few wolves, few coyotes. Although I had a friend in grad by school. A bear. Um, I had a friend in grad school working in Svalbard um, who ended up having to shoot a polar bear during field work mm. who was who was hunting them and um, got between them and the snow machine and was coming for them. Jeez. Not a lot to do. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So th- there yeah. are animals in North America that think of us as food sometimes. Yeah, they're definitely. They're yeah. pretty amazing, but they're pretty scary. Yeah. Don't dress up like a seal. No, that's... <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks again, Sophie. And uh, we will see you all in the next episode. 